1: It's Off the Pike, presented by FanDuel. The second half of the NBA season is here, and you can bet on the action with an assist from FanDuel, America's number one sportsbook. Right now, you can check the new and improved Parlay Hub. Filter by odds, sport, and bet type to easily find the most popular parlays and same-game parlays, all on one page. Plus, start betting on the Explore page and the Pulse and bet live same-game parlays for every NBA game. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, official partner of the NBA. The Ringer is committed to responsible gaming. Please visit theringer.com slash RG to learn more about the resources and helplines available. And listen to the end of the episode for additional details. Must be 21 plus in presidents like states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit theringer.com slash RG.
2: This episode is brought to you by Empower. You got money questions like, can I retire early? What are my best savings options? Can I afford to pay for my kid's education? Luckily, Empower has all the answers. With Empower's real-time dashboard and real live conversations, you get clarity on your real-life financial goals. So join 18 million Americans and Empower What's Next. Start today at Empower.com. Tap the banner or visit this episode's page to learn more. Sponsored by Empower, not an endorsement or a statement of satisfaction by a client.
1: Welcome into Off the Pike. I'm Brian Barrett. We're going to chat with Matt Porter from the Globe. Matt is great on the Bees. It's been an incredible first half for the Bruins. They won seven of their final eight going into the All-Star break. They get a long extended break. So with All-Star weekend here this weekend. So we'll get into some of the surprises in the first half. What will the Bees do at the deadline? We'll get into Charlie Coyle's career season. Marshan, Pasta, Lindholm, should we be concerned about him? So we'll get into all that coming up in just a little bit with Matt Porter. But recording this part of the pod, after the Celtics come back and beat the Pelicans, I got to tell you, I was getting a little bit worried that they were going to drop this game again at home after what transpired on Saturday night against the Clippers. And it looked ugly at points during that first half, but they responded in a major way in the second half. So before we get into the game and the biggest development which is Derek White getting out of his shooting slump. And it's very important for this pod that Derek White gets out of a shooting slump because you know how much we like Derek White here. So look, and I alluded to this with my buddy Evan Valenti on the Sunday pod. When Porzingis doesn't play, it is so noticeable. The last two games, it just feels like they don't have that curveball to go to, right? He's the bailout guy for this team when they run into trouble offensively. So... They had that huge shooting slump in the first half of the game, which I'll get to in a second here. If Porzingis is there, you don't have that type of slump because it's like, okay, let's get the ball to Porzingis in his spots. And I mentioned it after the Heat game the other day when I made the comparison to Gronk, where I feel like they're unbeatable when they have Porzingis, like I felt the Patriots were never going to lose when they actually had a healthy Rob Gronkowski on the field. And this game, it was very noticeable in the first half. And I would say the same thing about the Clippers game where... Hey, we need some easy baskets. We need a cheat code offensively. And they just didn't have it. It's just tonight and the game against the Clippers. It's just a reminder to me that as talented as this team is, top to bottom, they can't win a championship without Porzingis. So I thought this is a gritty, gutsy win by the Celtics. But in the first half, that's what was in the back of my mind. Like, damn, they really do need Kristaps Porzingis. By the way, I kind of feel bad for Luke Cornett because he's been playing pretty well and he had to miss this game. And by the way, he had to sit next to Porzingis on the bench. Porzingis is out there with a nice three-piece suit and Cornette's just wearing like regular clothes. It's like Porzingis looks like he's getting ready to do like some sort of photo shoot and Cornette's just dressed like a normal person. So I feel bad for him, first of all, that he's dealing with an injury once again because it seems like he keeps getting banged up as well. It tends to happen with big guys, but also the fact he had to sit next to Porzingis on the bench. Okay, so first half of the game, this is the biggest difference. They go 6 of 25, the Celtics from deep, 24%. Second half, 11 of 21, 52.4%. That's why you keep taking the threes, right? Like, you want to get to the free throw line, they did more of that in the second half of the game, but you got to keep taking the threes. I know people get caught up in, hey, are they taking too many threes? As long as they're good threes, I felt like there were some rushed ones in the first half of this game. Especially from Tatum, but overall, you got to keep, if you're generating good shots, you have to take those shots. Anyway, so I thought the biggest story, as I mentioned off the top here, was Derek White. So we talked about the 15 game shooting slump and sort of how this has been affected by the J.J. Reddick podcast and all that the other day. But if you look at just the three games prior to this game against New Orleans, eight of 32 from the field, 25% for Derek White, four of 20 from deep. And just 23 total points in the previous three games. 23 in the previous three, right? I mean, that's incredible. At one point during this game, he was one of seven from deep. So it felt like, hey, they really got to get Derek White going in some way, shape, or form. And as it was looking a little bit ugly there, and it got a little close again. In like, I mean, it was close the entire game, but you felt the game... Sort of, hey, New Orleans is hitting some big shots in the fourth quarter. And then Derek White was awesome in the fourth quarter. He hit his last three threes of the game. He was three of four from deep in the fourth quarter. He Other stuff he was doing, too. Drove by Murphy on a closeout, gets to the free throw line. He hit one of his patented Derek White floaters to make it 94-81. He had a pull-up three. That's when you know he has his confidence back to make it 99-98. That was a huge shot. And then he had that like little lefty, crafty finish in the lane where... He jump-stopped and then turned around and hit one with his left hand to make it 104-101. Corner three made it 107-101. That was pretty much the game. So huge shots from Derek White. So this is a big thing. that Because if Derek White doesn't come out of that shooting slump of the fourth quarter of this game, the Celtics don't win. And the one thing that I think is important when we look at Derek White and watch Derek White play is he's still confident taking these shots. Now I know he did the little joke where he like looked up after he finally hit a three. But after the game, he was doing his interview with Abby Chen from uh, from NBC Sports Boston, and he said, just basically, he said, essentially, paraphrasing what he said is, I just got to make sure I'm taking good shots. And Joe Mazzulla said the same thing at his press conference after the game, where, yeah, we're, we just need him to keep taking good shots and don't get caught up with what was saying, don't get caught up in the results. And the results had been bad the previous three games, and the fact that he kept shooting That's a good thing. So nice to see Derek White sort of break out of that slump in a major way when you needed it in the fourth quarter. The other guy that I thought was huge throughout the game was Drew Holiday. I felt like he really kept them in the game in the first half. It was a huge sign. I know former team, too, so he's probably up for that. He finishes with 20 points. He's 7 of 11, 3 of 5 from deep. And you look at some of the stuff he was doing. He had this nice drive, and he hit a lefty layup in transition. He went right past Zion in in, in and out, which was—Zion had a nice night offensively, but the Celtics really took advantage of him defensively. That guy cannot move on the defensive end of the floor. I mean, that's an effort thing. He cannot move. He's terrible defensively. But anyway, lefty layup in transition. He had a corner three. He drove through McCollum. That's something I think the Celtics could actually dig into more. I think that Drew Holiday's post game at the guard position is a weapon. Like, you don't want to be doing it all the time, but at times, if he has a small guard— or a weaker guard like McCollum that he can overpower go to it. He got to the free throw line. I mean, he got an and when he missed the free throw, but he went right through McCollum. Then the one issue I had with him in the game is at the end of the half, the dude had a wide open layup. and He kicked it out for a three. I'm like, dude, take the points, man. Make it 60 to 52 instead of staying at 60 to 50. I get it. This team is big on threes, but man, you got an open layup. Just hit the layup, dude. Then he drove by Zion to get to the free throw line at the beginning of the second half to make it 60 to 55, hit another big three, lefty layup in transition on a nice feed from Tatum. And then he had that huge offensive rebound, found Al Horford for a three to make it 71-68. Then he hit a three later on after that, another drive past Zion. So I thought he was awesome. He picks and chooses his spots with this team, but this is a really important Drew game because of What he did in the first half to to sort of rather keep the Celtics in this one. And then Hauser hit some big shots, some huge shots, some timely shots. He finishes with 11 points, 3 of 7. He's a plus 9. But you think about it. In the first half, it's 44-27. He hits a 3 to make it 40-30. Then in the second half, he hits a wing 3 to make it 74-73. Then he has that cut, and Keita finds him for a dunk. He gives the Celtics a 76-73 lead. And then he had a three off an inbound. I don't know how you lose him on an inbound. I mean, this is a shooter. Makes it 94-89. So I really do feel like all the shots he hit in the game tonight, the wing three early was sort of keeping you within distance of New Orleans. The wing threes later on in the third quarter, or the wing three later on in the third quarter, gave you the lead. And then he has the dunk right after that. And a big shot to give you, what, a five-point lead later on in that fourth quarter. So huge shots from him. And then Jalen, he didn't have his typical fast start. I mean, he did not have that against the Clippers either, but he finishes with 22. He's 8 of 15. He was not great from the three-point line, only hit the 1-3 late in the game, 1 of 5 on threes. He did have 11 rebounds, though, and 7 assists, and you're seeing some maturation with those numbers. I'll get to those in a second, but some of the things that stuck out to me with Jalen in this game, I mean, you just think about it. I mentioned the assists. He finds Keita on a drive, makes it 30-18. Finds Keita on another drive, makes it 34-23. Later on in the game, through Ingram, makes it 40-53. to Drives through McCollum, makes it 60-50. to And one, right out of half. I thought this was a great play call by Joe Mazzulla, his first play out of halftime. You get Jalen an elbow jumper. He actually got an and one out of it, made it 60-53. to Then he got to his mid-range game, made it 62-57. He crashed an offensive rebound to... Get the offensive rebound, doesn't get the follow, but he gets fouled, hits both free throws, makes it 73-70. to 70. Then after a rebound, he drove on Jones, got to the free throw line, only hit one of the two. And I'm talking about a rebound of the defensive end, and he just pushed it all the way to the other side. He only hit one of his two free throws, but that's a nice play by Jalen to say, hey, we got to get out in transition. Later on in the game, 102-98 is the score coming out of a timeout. Jalen takes on the Zion matchup. This is something I've been talking about. Like Jalen wants all these premier offensive players. Now, I love that about him. Like He wants to be the guy that takes on the opposition's best wing player, in some cases, best guard. In this case, it was a guy that he's giving significant weight up to in Zion Williamson. So I love the fact that he wanted to take that matchup on. And, of course, he hit the three late that I alluded to as well. But here's a big number with Jalen. Last season, Jalen had eight games with six assists. He had his ninth six-assist game against the Pelicans. So he already has more six-assist games this season than he had last year. We talked about some of the struggles he had early on. Jalen has never been a great playmaker throughout his career. He has been much better this season. And I give him a lot of credit because he was going through some growing pains early on this season as it pertains to his playmaking, much better as of late. And he's much better at when he gets past his guy He's much more conscious of, okay, if I don't want to get right to my pull-up game, I'm going to get into the lane, and the big is going to have to commit, and that's where he saw some of these drop-off passes to Kata. We've seen it a lot this season where Jalen will throw out a lob, so he's been much better in terms of his decision-making. He deserves a lot of credit for that. As for Tatum, the one thing I would complain about with Tatum in this game, six turnovers, and... I know he had a big game, I'll get to the numbers, but some of the passes he made, like the one that sticks out to me the most, and he had a bunch of them, you may disagree with me that this isn't the most egregious one, but from my perspective it was, he basically takes two dribbles to his right, he's at the elbow area, he's about to go up for a jump shot, he decides not to, he has space on the defender, and he just tries to throw it to Pritchard on the corner with like two defenders in front of him, that pass was not there, like that's not one of those ones like we see careless turnovers at times where guys are trying to make... Big passes, right? Like home run passes, so to speak. This is like obvious. Like the guy's right in front. It was almost like when a quarterback doesn't see a defender when the defender's right in front of him or the quarterback does see the defender and still makes the pass like Mac Jones-esque. That's what Tatum did there. I'm like, whoa, dude, what are we doing here? But anyway, that's the one thing that I would complain about tonight with Tatum is he turned the ball over too much and a lot of them were lazy turnovers. He goes for 28, 10, and 8 in this game. Just two of eight from deep, but you make up for that when you get to the free throw line. Seven times. I was wondering what we would hear from Tatum after this game. Like when we got to halftime and the Celtics were not playing particularly well, I thought they still had a chance to win it. But in the first quarter, when they were playing, they really were out of sync. I was kind of worried about what Tatum was going to say after the game, because if you go back to that press conference on Saturday night after the Clippers loss, Tatum mentioned the fact that the Clippers were well coached and you have to make counter punches and make adjustments. Now, I didn't take that as a shot at Missoula, but it did you could interpret it that way, right? It felt like what Tatum was saying is like, hey, we just have to be better when we're playing a team like the Clippers that have talent all over the place can do a lot of different things schematically. We gotta be better and we gotta counter punch. We have to do different things in the game. But if they had lost this game and they asked Tatum about the adjustments after the game, I was just like kind of worried about what the comments would be because we really haven't had any issues with this team. This season, And I do wonder what Tatum's answer would have been if they asked him about making adjustments in this game. But the point being, they were great in the second half, so you can't really complain. I thought Tatum was pretty good overall besides the turnovers, as I mentioned. I mean, the numbers, he had 28 points and he had 10 rebounds and he had 8 assists. So the numbers would tell you that. He continues to be very powerful. Drove through Herb Jones, hit a floater, made it 6'5 early. He got that switch on McCollum. This is something Tatum's really good at now. When he gets the switch, he went right through McCollum, got an and one. Got to his mid-range game on Marshall to make it 34-25. I would like Tatum to get into that mid-range a little more. more. I know it's not the most efficient shot, obviously. In fact, it's the least efficient shot. But I do feel like sometimes you need to be able to hit tough twos in the postseason. Like we've seen a guy like Kawhi Leonard in 19 was so great getting to sort of that mid-range area, just rising up, hitting a shot. And teams are going to try to take away your three ball. They don't want you to get to the basket. So I do think it's important that he continues to do that. Transition drive and finish made it 44-32. Had a great pass to find Drew for an open corner three. Then he had a top of the key three. Got Nance on him, another mismatch, drove around him. And then he had Zion on him late in the game, drove right by him, scored. And overall, I thought pretty solid game, drove by McCollum late to get that dunk. But overall, he's been much better this season in terms of identifying mismatches, going after the mismatches, the one issue I have with Tatum is at times the decisions have just got to be quicker, and that's where I feel like these turnovers come in, because he tries to break down his defender, and then if he doesn't break down his defender right away, he's holding on to the ball for a little bit there, and then the defense has time to recover, right? So, like, you get the ball swung to you at the wing, make a quick decision. Either take a shot, no problem with that, catch and shoot three, he's been over 40% this season. So you can take the catch and shoot three, drive the closeout. One of the two things. Don't just like stop, get into this whole jab step game. Like he's great when he, when he, I get it. Like he can do a ton of things. But if you want to do that, when you get into the elbow or you're posting up, that's fine. Like if you want to do that stuff there, but it's my issue is when he catches the ball on the wing or he catches the ball at the top of the key at times, just like, dude, you have to make quicker decisions. Because what you're doing, and Jalen sometimes has a propensity to do this as well, you're letting the defense recover. So from a playmaking perspective, it's going to make your life more difficult for eventually, hey, if you're going to do two jab steps and then eventually start driving, well, the defense has already recovered, so the passing lanes aren't as clear. You drive the closeout initially— Then those passing lanes become clearer because then the help is coming right over and you're able to make a pass to the corner for a three. So I think that's a way that he could cut down some of those mistakes. I know I'm complaining about a guy that had 28 points. I'm just pointing this out. It's one thing about Tatum that does sort of aggravate me at times. It's just when he catches the ball on the wing, he's got to be quicker with his decisions. Okay. by the way, I did want to mention this. So Zion in this game goes for 26 points. He was impossible to stop at times. He had 22 points in the paint. And if you look at him on the season, he's second in points per game in the paint at 17.1. Giannis is number one at 20.8. Tonight, as we mentioned, he's at 22. He played just 31 minutes, though. Ingram played 36. McCollum played 37. Jason Tatum played 37. And Jalen Brown played 37. And McCollum's, like, not a star-level player, but he's their third-best player. That's the reason I throw him into this conversation there. The reason I point out the minutes is this. He can't give you big minutes. Zion was gassed on multiple occasions during this game. And I'm not going to pretend I watch every Pelicans game because I certainly don't. But we've seen this at times throughout this guy's career where he's not in good enough shape. Like the defensive stuff, that's about effort. And he doesn't have the necessary energy to be able to give you all the effort defensively. Like there's no reason a guy with his level of athleticism should be this bad of a defender. Now, like he has his... Physical limitation I something that's cr- crazy to say about like a great athlete, but like, he can't be like a five defensively because yeah, he can jump and all that, but he doesn't have long arms and all that different type of stuff, right? Like he's not a super long athlete, but there's no reason he should be like a liability defensively. And we saw at times he was in this game. And the reason he can only give you the 31 minutes compared to Tatum and Jalen to both give you 37 and Ingram who gives you 36 is he's not in good enough condition. And if he could actually play at the same level he was playing early in the game, like Tatum and Jalen can close this thing out, Celtics would have had a chance to lose this game. But because Zion, and this is not about the Celtics, it's about Zion. Zion can't do that. He lets his team down. And that's the one thing that I've always, I guess I don't really appreciate about Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown. I think maybe as a fan base, we should. These guys are professional. From day one, both these two individuals have been professional. Tatum adds something every year. Jalen Brown adds something every year. Look at their physiques, too. Tatum has bulked up throughout his career. This past offseason, we know about the 12 pounds. I think Jalen Brown has put on weight as well. This offseason, I don't know what the exact number is. We just know the number on Tatum because he actually said it. But I think physically, Jalen Brown does look bigger this season. This is why the Celtics are where they're at as an organization. All these other moves they've made are great, but it's your superstars. Take this seriously. These guys are in great shape. These guys are adding to their game. Zion still can't fucking shoot. The only thing he can do is score in the paint. And he's great at it. He's an absolute force. But think about like Giannis, who's a force as well. Giannis is at least in tip-top shape. He's never going to be a good shooter. He's actually improved when it comes to that a little bit. Although his free throw shooting has waxed and waned throughout his career. And he takes forever to shoot. That's a whole different conversation. But I'm just grateful after watching Zion tonight. That's never happening to Tatum in a game. That's never happening to Jalen in a game. The guy came out with, what, six minutes left in the fourth quarter because he's huffing and puffing. Your team fucking needs you. You you don't have the endurance to stay in the game. I mean, that is pathetic. <laughs> that is absolutely embarrassing. So I'm glad the Celtics have these two guys as their stars. They're not perfect players. They've had flaws, but, or they have flaws, I should say, but at least they're posting every night, in the words of Alex Corr, they're professional and they're fit. Zion Williamson is not fit enough. For an NBA star. Guy's a great player. But he's not nearly professional enough. And he's not in good enough shape to help his team win this game tonight. Even though, could argue at times, he was the best player on the floor. Alright, coming up next, we'll get into the Bees. We'll chat with Matt Porter from the Globe.
3: Happy Super Bowl to all who celebrate from FanDuel. America's number one sports book. If you're like me, Super Bowl Sunday is all about scoring the best seat on the couch. Grabbing your favorite football snacks and placing some super bets So how about this one? We're getting ready. We're early now, and the Chiefs are underdogs in this game.
1: But I'm going to do this. I've told you, I'm not picking against Patrick Mahomes anymore. We
3: had them on the money line last week, plus 180 to beat the Ravens. So how about this one? The Chiefs, alternate line, minus 2.5. So the Chiefs just to win by a field
1: goal. You can get that for plus 116. So that's what I like early on as we get ready for the Super
3: Bowl. FanDuel has so many ways for you to end the season with a W or two or three. Not only can you bet on who will win Super Bowl 58, but FanDuel also has bets for which players will score a touchdown, how many points will be scored, and so much more. If you're new to FanDuel, join today and you'll get $200 in bonus bets when you win your first $5 bet. Just visit FanDuel.com/pike to sign up.
1: That's FanDuel.com/pike. Make every moment more with FanDuel. An
3: official sports betting partner of the NFL. Must be 21 plus and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1 800 Gambler or visit the ringer.com slash RG. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued is non withdrawable bonus bets that expire
1: seven days after receipt. See terms at sportsbook.fanduel.com. Welcome back into Off the Pike. Joining us now from the Globe is Matt Porter. Matt, what's going on, man?
0: How are you? Chilling, man. Just uh, enjoying my winter here. Kind of mild and uh, not shoveling too much. So I'm happy.
1: Yeah, that's a good thing. I think I've only shoveled once this year, which is a good thing. May have to do a little bit of shoveling a little bit here. But overall, it's been pretty tame and I cannot complain about that. All right. So another team I can't complain about or something else I should say I can't complain about is the bees. So they go through this little stretch where. They lost three games, but after regulation. So even when they weren't playing well, they were still picking up points in these games. And now they've won seven of eight. The only loss during that stretch is Carolina, who, of course, historically has recently given them a lot of trouble. During that stretch, they have three games with at least five goals. Colorado, Montreal, and Philadelphia on Saturday. During that stretch, five on five, 25 goals, the most in the league. The goal's four percentage is... What, um, 73.5%, which is eight and a half percentage points higher than anyone else. 96 high danger chances, the most compared to 69 high danger chances against. So they finish incredibly strong before the break. So any little bit of a sign of struggle, like I said, like losing these games after regulation, the Bruins seem to respond So what has made this team, from your perspective, so consistent all season long where they really haven't hit many rough patches or when they do, they come really right out of them?
0: If you only watch the Bruins, right, then you're kind of you you might struggle to see this. But other teams will tell you, like other coaches and, you know, reporters in other markets, you know, when you you talk to people around the league and they're saying the Bruins just play their system. And it sounds cliche. And it's like kind of a boring answer because not everybody loves to kind of dig into the nitty gritty of hockey systems, right? It's such a, you know, oh, did you see that sick goal by Pasternak or that crazy save by Swayman or Allmar? Now that's kind of how people get into hockey really. But when you look at, I look at a guy like Pavel Zaka, like he wants to make plays, but if you look at what he's doing in the defensive zone, he's always supporting Charlie Coyle the same way. You're not having guys blowing the zone and looking for offense. Nobody's cheating. They lost Bergeron, who's like the er example of that, right? He's like the you know Mr. Selkie, they're gonna name the trophy after this guy uh, you know one day. They all continue to play the right way, even guys that come into the lineup like Parker Watherspoon, you know, their seventh defenseman. He's playing a safe, simple, smart game within the system. Um, you know, rookies like Mason Laura, you know, they they have their moments, you know, you can tell that they're tra- they're kind of like maybe pushing for their offense a little bit. It doesn't really quite work out. They kind of fade to the background. You know, they have their moment where they provide a little bit of spark, but they don't really fit. Why is that? Because they're not quite playing to Jim Montgomery's system, which was, you know, really a modified Bruce Cassidy system. They've just been playing this consistent hockey where they don't really give up leads in the third. You know, they they can lock it down if they need to. They can play the right way, and then they have game breakers like Pasternak, like Marshan, who can get you know those get them into offensive situations and finish plays. So it's like you know they're not the world beaters that they were last year. You know they're not winning a lot of games five to one. Obviously they we saw them pound Montreal, um, you know a little uh, a few games ago. Um, so they can break out, but they're really a team that's like built to win three to one, and they're as solid as they come in doing that, and it's working for them. I mean basically keep doing what they've been doing the last you know five or six years or so.
1: Well, yeah, and they keep chugging along, right? We've seen so many times where it felt like. This group or this core, it could be it, and they find a way to respond. So, do you think the way they play consistently in the system is that just, hey, it went from Shara and Bergeron, and now Marshan has taken over as the captain? And there's still a lot of the core members here from the recent teams, Pasta and Coyle, I would even put in that group because ever since he came over in 2019, he's sort of been like the perfect Bruin. Any sort of role you need him to play, he can certainly fill that in. So, Is it a player's thing? Is it an organizational thing? Because obviously you've had a coaching change during that stretch. What is it? Is it just they find the right people and everybody sort of blends in together?
0: Yeah, I hate to say yes, that is it. But it is kind of it. Like they get smart players, you know, they get players that are maybe undervalued, you know, don't have counting stats or, you know, just didn't really fit. Uh, bring him in. Morgan Geeky is a a recent example. I mean, he was a player that Seattle knew they were going to have to pay at some point. He was kind of on the rise. The Bruins sign him, do a two times two deal, You bring him in and and hope that he can kind of be a stabilizing piece of that bottom six. And he's shown, you know, during stretches, you know, where he's kind of, you know, bringing his offense up a little bit. You know, he can produce a little bit, but he's going to be a big, rangy, solid kind of middle six forward for you. who can, you know, right-handed center, take draws, um, you know, he can kill penalties if he needs to, he can be on the power play if they need him. And, you know, he's an example of just, you know, undervalued guy. They bring him in, teach him the system and they all play the right way. And when you talk about char and Bergeron, like, you know, the, the word leadership gets thrown around and that's, you know, kind of makes your eyes glaze over a little bit. Cause what does that really mean? Well, in the Bruins context, it means, you know, yeah, like, you know, training hard and doing the right thing and taking care of your body and all of that kind of leadershipy stuff. But it also means like, we are mentally strong enough to play this play this style play this system knowing that you know we're not always going to you know score 5 goals a night just be patient the chances will come if we continue to shut down the offense is what basically what they say um, and it works you know they they're all committed to they've they've seen they've proof of concept they see that that it works you know just support everybody work as a group of 5 you know don't take wild chances don't freelance and the opportunities will come. They've shown that. And it comes from, you know, guys like, you know, I hate to say like stepping up when given a chance, but Charlie Coyle, you know, he's mentioned a great example of that. I mean, he's a guy that was, you know, kind of a center wing in Minnesota. They weren't really sure how they were using him. Was he a top line guy? Okay. Maybe not. Okay. Is he a checking line center? Yeah, I guess. Is he, We need him on the wing for the next three weeks. He can do that. Let's put him there. So he came to Boston with his head spinning. He never really kind of had a role, didn't really know what he was doing or what he could be in the NHL in his mid-20s, which is kind of not where you want to be as a player. You want to have a an idea of what you're doing. He comes in, they say, okay, we want you to be the third-line center and learn from as much as you can from Bergeron and Krejci. He does that. And now, when given the chance to produce with some higher caliber offensive players like a Pasternak or a Marchand, or even a, throw a Jake DeBruskin there because he's got plenty of speed and, and scoring ability, um, you know, he's going to get more points. And that feeds confidence and that You know, lets him kind of play his game, um, knowing that he's going to get some opportunities just because of the players that he's uh, on the same line with. So um, it's obviously a sign for other players, too, like maybe a Trent Frederick, you know, that have kind of bided their time, you know, kind of built their game a little bit, you know, on the lower lines. And maybe you'll get an opportunity and maybe the points will come for you, too.
1: By the way, we both mentioned Chara. How about you play two decades in the NHL and then you say, you know what? I'm going to start running marathons. Like <laughs> That's
0: insane. Uh, yeah, not not for me. Um, <laughs> but no, it's <laughs> it's kind of crazy. Like, you know, the stories about him are are true. You know, he really is. He's one of those guys that's just driven. You know, he has to do something. He has to do something big. He has to push himself. He has to go greater than he ever has. And, you know, he'll, he'll be one of those guys that's, 70 years old, you know, doing some kind of strength competition just to just to show him and the world and the universe that he can do it.
1: Yeah, pretty insane. All right. So we both referenced Coyle there. And if you look at that eight game stretch, I was mentioning when the Bruins won seven of eight. Pasta has 15 points, which is third in the league behind McKinnon and Kucherov. And then sixth during that stretch is Charlie Coyle with 12 points, four goals. So Coyle now already with 18 goals on the season, his high with the Bruins already, and his career high is 21. He's up to 42 points. He had
3: 45 last season. Career high is 56. Okay, so he's going to surpass both those numbers. He's third in penalty kill minutes among forwards. He does a little bit of
1: everything for this team. It's just rare you see a guy at the age of 31 having his best season. So the scoring is obviously up, and as I reference. There's a lot of different things that he brings to the table with this team, but is there anything that
3: specifically sticks out to you? Because we just we don't normally see a player having his best season. Is it just more opportunities with the guys, the Bergerons and the Krejci's not here?
0: Totally, and it's it's like when you're playing with guys like Pasternak and Marchand, you know, you're going to get your opportunities just because of the attention that 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 the D is, is giving them. Um, you know, if guys are looking at Pasternak, well you know, Charlie Coyle has a chance because he's got some wheels, you know, he's not, you know, he's a bigger guy, but he can still move, you know, and he, I, I'm thinking of goals where he's just kind of broken out and finished. Um, you know, and that that's going to happen when you're with, um, you know, players that are that good. And you know, he's, I see a guy who's playing his game. I mean, and that game is, you know, big, strong, possess the puck, uh, hold guys off, you know, use your strength in the corners to, you know, maybe, um, you know, the term would be A-frame, you know, like get up against the boards, you know, where you're kind of – the, the puck is between you and the boards and there's guys around you, but you're kind of using your body to shield and then guys are getting open and you're, mo- and you're moving the puck out of there. You know, that can create a, an odd man opportunity if you can hold the puck and draw the defense to you. So, like, if you're doing that with guys who have third line, fourth line finishing skill – you probably aren't going to get too many points. But if you have David Pasternak on your line, well, you can, you know, maybe just pass out of that situation or another kind of similar situation and, and get Pasternak open for a shot or a one-timer. Um, you know, it's stuff like that. And, and of course, you know, Pasternak is is an, a world-class playmaker. He gets so much attention for his shot. But, I mean, he's an excellent puck handler, excellent playmaker um, anywhere in the offensive zone. So really, Char- all Charlie has Coyle has to do is get body position, you know, and and with his stick on the ice, and he's going to get some chances from David Pasternak. Same thing with Brad Marchand; he's going to create plenty of chances for him too. So you know, a, a seventy-point Charlie Coyle season is kind of what you were hoping for. Um, if you're the Bruins with Patrice Bergeron leaving, you know, you needed somebody to get step into that role and you know finish some plays and you know hold it down there. Uh, he's been able to do that. You know, he, he's not a you know an elite offensive guy, but you know, they've shown that they can, you know, this coaching staff can put him in good situations, just tell him to do what he does. And, you know, it's, it's really, it's working for them. It's a different style, you know, than maybe David Pasternak is used to playing with Brad Marshan is used to playing with, um, you know, but there, there is a similarity in in the sense that he's a smart kind of, you know, do it all center, uh, you know, like a Patrice Bergeron, maybe not as gifted offensively, but um, certainly can hold it down. And, you know, if you're Charlie Coyle, I mean, you're just, you're happy. You know, you're you're in a spot in your hometown playing a, you know, number one center role. You probably never, ever, ever thought that you would get there. But here he is. Maybe 30 goals for Charlie Coyle this season. It's incredible.
1: I know. He's been outstanding. And it must be so cool to be playing for the Bruins growing up in Weymouth. Like, that's it's just an incredible story to be able to do that. So, you mentioned Pasta. He's up to 33 goals, third of the NHL. He's third in points with 72 plus 1200 right now on FanDuel for the Hart trophy behind McKinnon, who's minus money, Kucherov and McDavid. This seems like one of those years where McDavid is not going to win. So if you want to get a hard trophy, Pasta, this could be the year that you try to do it, but you get some good competition there with McKinnon and Kucherov. But so he's fifth in power play points, fourth in power play shots, and the bees are fifth on the power play. And I would argue a lot of that is just because of Pasta, not just because of his scoring, but the fact that You always got to pay attention to that guy because he has one of the most dangerous shots in the entire NHL. You mentioned the playmaking. So he's up to, what, 39 assists. His career high was last year at 52. So he's on pace to pass that. He's been one of the best players in the league for a couple of years now. But is there anything different this year that you've seen from Pasta than in years past? I mean, obviously, he had his best season last year. But is there anything different that he's doing this year to you?
0: Maybe not so much you know, this year versus last year, but I've seen over the last two years a real increase in physicality. Like he's somebody who is going to go out and rattle some bones in the four check, which he really wasn't doing, you know, maybe three, four years ago. Um, you know, definitely using his strength, using his physicality to, you know, knock guys around a little bit, move them out of the way, which, you know, you don't really associate that with David Bostranoch's game, but it is there and it doesn't have to be there all the time. But, you know, he is definitely somebody that it's, pretty darn hard to take the puck off of him now. And that wasn't always the case. I mean, I think a lot of people who have, you know, watched the Bruins over the years, remember, you know, the young David Pasternak who was, you know, falling down all the time, getting thrown around a little bit, not unlike a Matt Patra is now kind of going through those, those early struggles where you're trying to find your footing in the league and, you know, keep up with the the massive strength, you know, that's being thrown at you every day uh, before you can, you know, pack it on your own body. Um, so that that's kind of the number one thing. Really the, the game, you know, that he's bringing, I mean, he's always coming up with new moves. He's always finding different ways to attack defenses. And that's you no know, credit to him and his film study and um, the skills coaches that he works with and his off season training. Um, you know, he always kind of brings some something new um, the shootout uh, move that he's going to now where he just, it's almost like it's just, it's it's like a posterization of a dunk, you know, that he does, where he just whips it, <laughs> w- brings it behind his back, and just whips it past the goalie, like almost disrespectfully. Um, it, that's that's a new, a new thing that he's been doing this year that I, I just I just think is so cool because you just don't see that. I mean, it's so hard. I mean, the, um, on Nesson they've broken it down a bunch, but like, you know, it's I can't even say like, oh, it's hard for me to do it. I could never even do that. Where you're, you know, in a beer league game, where you're like kind of just bringing it off of your hip and just like, that's so hard to do. You know, you have to have such strength in your hands and wrists and arms to, to be able to, to get that puck behind you and just whip it from that position. So yeah, I'm excited to see what he comes up with. Cause he's obviously not done creating the guys an artist out there.
1: Yeah. And it just feels like all that stuff is easy for him. Like you see it come across the screen. It's like, Oh yeah, it looks pretty easy for pasta to do that. Not many other people in the league can do that, but Hey, he makes it look pretty easy
0: easy game and it's funny you know you know somebody doesn't really know hockey when they're saying you know talking about how he like loses the puck and stuff i mean this is a guy that's he's like a point guard you know that's like just constantly creating just and, and distributing like yeah he's gonna have some turnovers he's got the puck on his stick all the time so right. anyway just a, a world-class guy, you know I, to the mvp conversation you know i don't think he's gonna get there mckinnon is just going psycho mode this year and kucherov same thing i mean he's you know for how down Tampa is to their from their standard. I mean, he's got to get consideration, obviously McDavid. You know, every year, but I mean Pasternak's. I think he's twenty five points ahead of Marchand right now for the team scoring lead, and just doing it every single night. I mean, scoring first, getting that lead, um, you know, bringing a, a two to one game to a three to one game. It's just he does it every night, and the the game is a com- pretty close to a complete game. I mean, he's he's never going to win a selkie, but you know he's doing he's doing enough on the defensive end for a guy who does what he does on the offensive end
1: yeah i'm just interested to see because he's been so good for so long if he can have like that signature postseason run this year right it feels like that's sort of the one thing and look if he wins a hard trophy at some point that would be great but maybe that's the one thing that's sort of missing from like not to say that he's been bad in the postseason he certainly had his moments but to have that Stretch where he leads the team to the Stanley Cup final, or something along those lines, or a deep run to the Eastern Conference final, where he's just like incredible.
0: Yeah, it's it's tough too because you know obviously the physicality and you know the it just it it's a different sport as as everyone always says in in the in the postseason and it's and it's true. I mean, just you get away with so much more. You're able to to just you know batter guys like Pasternak, you know, really attack the other team's offensive weapons and try to take them out of the game. And, you know, the, the players are selling out, you know, um, everything they have to block shots on the power play. So, you know, they're willing to step in front of those posture, knock cannons that he's letting go from the left side, um, you know, from that from that circle spot. So it, it's harder to get shots through. It's harder to to create. It's harder to produce. And, you know, you're right. If he's able to do that, you know, in, in the um, in the teeth of the defense in the postseason, then, you know, you really know you got something special. Um, but. That's the challenge, and that's what he's going to have to be faced with because, you know, there are teams uh, not too far behind the Bruins right now. Bruins are pretty comfortable in their, in their spot, but, you know, Florida's going to be tough. Carolina's going to be tough. Um, you know, the, all these teams have played the Bruins tough in the past and have plenty of confidence if if they should meet in the playoffs.
1: Yeah, and we mentioned earlier McKinnon and... That, that game they played against Colorado, what, like a week and a half ago now? He had six shots in the first two periods. And, like, the Bruins won that game relatively easily. Like, but I was just like, whoa. I mean, <laughs> he does. Yeah, he is so fast. All right. Yeah. So you mentioned Marchand being behind Pasta by a significant amount in terms of the points. He's heated up in the month of January where he started to score a bit more. So if you look at it, what does he have? 11 goals in his last 14, it was 13 in the 35 before then and ironically his he had a four game goal streak going and it was snapped against the Flyers when they actually scored six goals you would figure if they score six Marsha is going to get one of them but has anything changed or is just he's cashing in on these opportunities because it feels like he's been getting the shot attempts all season long is it just now he's finishing
0: yeah I think it's just going in for him now I don't think there's too much more than that it's the same kind of game that he's playing every single night where he's your emotional leader you know he's gonna get in there and you know be heavy and hard on the forecheck he's going to hold on to the puck he's going to bring it out to the top of the zone and you know circle and look for a play like i don't see very much drop off in his, in his game which is impressive considering you know that connection that he had with Bergeron was just automatic you know when you yeah. think of you know when you go out there and things happen so fast and you know where am i going to move the puck now you have to try to think two or three moves ahead and just knowing that Bergeron's always going to be in the right spot or where you expect him because you've talked about it and gone through it and practiced it. And, you know, you just have that, that connection. Um, That's really impressive. I mean, for him to, you know, still be a a highly productive player speaks to, you know, kind of his conditioning where he's at in his career, all of that stuff, but also, you know, his ability to adapt. And I think if you had asked him last summer, you know, are you nervous about this year? He would have said, absolutely. Just because of that, that, you know, unfamiliarity, that, that uncertainty of, uh, going into a season without Patrice Bergeron, who he's, you know, been with for, you know, 12 years as, as his line mate. I mean, that just doesn't happen in the NHL. Um, so he was lucky to have that. And, you know, it's a, it is impressive that he's taken, you know, the, the weight of the captaincy seemingly in stride. I don't, it doesn't seem like it's been, you know, too difficult for him or if he's, you know, losing his hair or whatever over it, and he seems to be handling it. Okay. Um, and, You know, the the little kind of clips that they released from the Behind the B show, you know, kind of show him kind of in his in his leadership. And um, I think he's kind of in the same way from that standpoint, you know, um, speaking when when needed and yapping uh, when he wants to.
1: Yeah, and I think he's been better than last year. And I don't know if part of that is just the fact that he was coming off the hip surgeries last year. And I wonder if maybe part of it is he's what, a year and a half removed from that now. So maybe that's part of it. But yeah, he's definitely turned it up in January. So Jake DeBrus, he missed that final game uh, before the break here on last Saturday. Jim Montgomery said, though, he's day to day. He is third in penalty kill minutes behind Coyle and Marshawn among the Bruins forwards, which you probably didn't expect that after last season, right? Because he was so impactful offensively. He was six last year in penalty minutes among forwards. He's already played more minutes on the penalty kill before the All-Star break than he did the entirety of last year. And he's starting to heat up too. Nine of his 25 points have come in January. He recently spoke with Boston Hockey Now about wanting an extension after the season. And he's, of course, an impending free agent. And it's a kind of a weird situation, right? Like, because they're in the middle of trying to make this run. And once they get into the postseason and whatnot, trying to make a run to get to the Stanley Cup after the early exit last year. But what do you think the future holds? For DeBrus, do you think the Bruins will be able to get a deal done with him, or do you think they'll be willing to let him go?
0: I think they want to keep him around. I mean, you've invested so much, you know, in this player. If you're Boston, um, you brought him up from the draft and, you know, kind of gone gone uh, with him through the ups and downs, um, you know, the coaching change. And I don't know if there's any hard feelings from that, kind of the way that that happened, because, You know, if you kind of read the tea leaves, he had something to do with Bruce Cassidy's exit. He was one of those, you know, young players that was dissatisfied. Um, You know, I think obviously if Jim Montgomery, you know, wasn't the coach that he is, you know, maybe things would be a little bit different. There'd be some lingering bitterness. I don't know. Just a guess on my part. But, um, you know, he's a player that's obviously defines the word streaky. You know, he's he's low first half, hot January and February. Like that's kind of the way it's gone with him. And I don't know what that speaks to, if that's just random chance, or if that, you know, there's something that needs to change with DeBrusque and his training. I'm sure that they're hard at work in that, you know, uh, figuring that out in the Bruins offices. Um, But good player. I mean, it has really become a well-rounded player, two-way winger. Uh, You mentioned the penalty kill stuff. I mean, he was always that kind of good penalty kill forward. Didn't really need him as much if you're the Bruins. Um, You know, maybe you thinking you're that you needed to save him for, for offensive shifts, but he's shown that he can do that. And he's had some excellent games from a defensive standpoint this season, um, using his speed and, you know, and his aggression to, you know, to get in there and challenge, challenge for pucks and, and battle for pucks and win them. Um, what the future looks like for Jake DeBrusque, I don't know. I, I think it's going to be in Boston. Um, I, you know, you look at the the deal Owen Tippett just signed in Philadelphia for, I think it was 6.2 million. I know it was eight years. I think it was 6.2 million. Yeah, that's probably where DeBrusque is gonna, you know, gonna gonna be, you know, maybe in the six to seven range. Um, I don't know that I don't know how much the slow start that he had this season, you know, where people were writing in November, you know, that geez, you know, Debruska is barely scoring at all, and you know, what what's his next deal gonna look like? I don't know how much weight that's going to hold just because this is who he is, you know, this he is a streaky player, yeah. they know this. Um you know, it, it doesn't mean he's going to be in that eight million dollar range. Certainly not, even with the cap going up. Uh, but I think they can find some kind of landing spot. I think there's enough goodwill on both sides. Um, I, I just, I just don't see Jake as a player who wants out. Uh, I think, you know, maybe at one, well, certainly at one point he did. Yeah. Um, but I'm not sure that that's that's the case anymore. Uh, I think he's more secure in where he is on this team and and in this organization. They like him, you know. He's a great, great guy, you know. He's a, a really nice, nice fella, you know. Very enjoyable to talk to. I think everybody kind of likes him. He's, you know, kind of, you know, their their kid brother, kind of that feel. You know, he's he's the only one that's talking about like getting Oreos from fans, you know, in the pregame warm up. And he's kind of just, just brings a, a different element. He's he's one of those like clubhouse guys, you know, like you have in baseball, you know, kind of the weirdo reliever or something like that, you know, that kind of just uh, lightens the mood. So I think they want to keep him around and they're going to have some space uh, coming up, um, you know, even with, uh, you know, something, something to do, you know, they, they have work to do, obviously to brusque. And, you know, they have to figure out if they're going to, you know, extend guys like Van Riemsdyk, you know, just has here and played himself into a deal you got Grizzlik and Forbert coming up, Shattenkirk, um and obviously the big one with Swain and you know how much of of the cap space is he going to eat up. Um uh, but you know they do have some space. So I, I feel like they make it work. Just just my gut tells me right now. Um just because, you know, he's a good he's a good player. If you lose a guy like Debrusque, you're going to be looking for a guy like Debrusque, one of those kind of solid supporting cast guys um who can play up on your top line, you know, for a season if you need him to. Um so Why let him go when you've invested this much in him?
1: Yeah, especially considering, to your point, you're familiar with the player. You've had him here his entire career. You went through a trade demand that obviously didn't happen at the time, which you weren't going to trade him then. He wasn't, at that point, you weren't going to get much value based on the season that he was coming off. And clearly he works well with Jim Montgomery. Like the Bruce Cassidy is obviously a great coach. He just won the Stanley Cup, but with DeBrusque, it wasn't going to work with him and Bruce Cassidy. Now it feels like he's completely on board with Montgomery. So to your point, you might as well keep him around rather than trying to go out there and try to find somebody else to replace him. All right, so Hampus Lindholm last year has the leads the NHL in plus minus. He was awesome. And then this season, you look at it, he's, what, 10 points in January? Tied for 11th among defensemen during that stretch, actually with McAvoy. So less time on the power play, obviously, has meant less points for him. So last season, he had the 53 points, which is a career high Now, lately, as I mentioned, like, we're starting to see more production on the offensive side of the zone. Have you noticed anything different with Lindholm? Was he trying to be, like, worried more so in the defensive end at the beginning of the season? Because maybe the Bruins felt like, hey, we don't have the firepower. We're going to have to be more of a defensive team. And lately, they're scoring like crazy. So he is getting involved in the rush more like we saw last year. Is there a difference from what we've seen with him lately from what he was doing the majority of the season?
0: Yeah, I think for him, it comes down to skating. And, you know, when he has a skating game, um, that's where his his confidence comes. And, you know, being able to be that one man breakout, you know, just kind of take the puck behind the net or, you know, below the circles and kind of wind it up and just blow past that first four checker and, you know, get the Bruins started uh, on the attack. I mean, that's really his game. That's where he's at his best. And, you know, he's dealt with some foot injuries the last few years. Um, you know, you saw it, you know, at times last year. And, you know, he after games, I mean, he was, you know, wearing a huge bag of ice and, you know, walking around kind of with a limp. And, you know, if he doesn't have, if he's not right there, you know, it's tough. And, and you know, they they might tell him, you know, all right, we need to defend a little bit more. We need to kill more penalties and things like that. And, you know, he's he's up high in shorthanded time, you know, and he's, you know, as you mentioned, logging those second unit power play minutes, which, you know, don't always you know, lead to really anything because you're kind of just getting the scraps at the end. Um, But, you know, that said, you know, you're still at the point where David Posternak is going to play, you know, all two minutes. um, So you have, you have that option at least. Um, You know, I I don't know if he's dealing with the foot injury this year. I don't know if it's a, you know, a lower body thing for him, but I really didn't think he had a very good first half, Uh, you know, to his standard and especially to the standard that he showed last year, which is, I will say is, is, his level. I mean, that's where he has shown that he can play at. Um, He was outstanding last year, you know, got some, some Norris, some light Norris consideration, um, you know, and deservedly so, especially, you know, with the, the angle of McAvoy being out at the start of the year. Um, You know, this year, I mean, it's just kind of taken him time to find his game, whether it's injuries or something else, I don't know, but uh, you know, him coming on strong lately is obviously a huge, a huge plus because they're going to need him and McAvoy to, play half a game in the playoffs, basically, um, you know, they're really lucky right now with this decor, all the injuries they've had that, you know, that, uh, you know, guys like Forbert, you know, grizzlick has been out of the lineup a little bit, um, you know, that that's, they can lean on a guy like McAvoy, um, you know, while Lindholm finds his game and McAvoy has been outstanding this year. Yeah. Um, so, it, you know, really, you know, I think he's, I think he's coming along, you know, you just hope that he can kind of maintain that throughout the spring.
1: Yeah, hopefully he's trending in the right direction, but maybe you're right. Maybe it is some sort of an injury that he's been nursing. And obviously the NHL is a lot different than any other sport. You really don't get a ton of information on these injuries that guys have. So it's tough to determine what it is. So you look at this team and there's been a lot of guys that have sort of, I don't want to say overachieved, but they've been better than I think most would have expected. Danton Heinen would be at the top of that list. Van Riemsdyk, when they signed him, it's like, uh, I don't know, man, he's he's kind of older. But then you looked at some of his like outlying numbers in Philadelphia. It's like, wait, they, they actually outscored teams five on five with him on the ice. How could that possibly happen in Philadelphia? So, OK, maybe this will work. But hey, could he replace Bertuzzi? And we've seen Bertuzzi hasn't really fit in with that Toronto team. So Van Riemsdyk has been a surprise. Frederick, Frederick rather, is having a really good season. Is, is there somebody that stands out to you as like the biggest surprise of the year?
0: I mean, well, that's three good candidates, right? I mean, Frederick, you know, you could kind of see it coming with him. I'm not super surprised. I mean, he's kind of – he's always had a good shot. His speed has maybe impressed me a little bit. He, he's kind of shown some bursts that I didn't necessarily know that he had. Um, the Heinen thing is outstanding. I mean, just a guy who, you know, kind of always wanted to be here, but, you know, maybe didn't bring quite enough to the table and, you know, go take your – you know, learn your lessons elsewhere, come back on a, on a short money deal. I mean, what a bargain he's been. Dan Reems like though, I think, you know, it was a low risk bet. I mean, he's only making a million and, you know, he, so it was kind of easy to shed that contract if he really was a bust, but I kind of had a good feeling about him coming into the year. Like his game, you know, he's just, he's, he's a guy that excels around the net. You know, he's like, you know, he's like a putback guy, you know, a tips guy. He's a, you know, but he also, what he's shown, you know, not watching him every day that I kind of didn't really realize that he had was his his hands, his ability to kind of, you know, make a blind backhand pass to an open David Pasternak for a one-timer, you know, or, you know, just kind of box somebody out and just slip it behind him, um, you know, make a really nice feed along the wall. You know, that, that really helps and you know when we're talking about it goes back to the coil conversation like it's not the the offensive you know kind of juggernaut style hockey that that you think of when you think of teams that are great offensively but having these guys that are you know big bodies that can hold off you know one defender and then here comes a help defender and up oh, there goes the puck away to an open guy that's a good you know that's a way to create goals in the NHL especially when things get gummed up as teams, you know, really start to lock it down and tighten defensively as we get into the, into the stretch run here. Um, So I've been really impressed with Andrew Reimsdyke. I mean, you know, he's eight goals right now. I mean, he's on pace for what, 14, 15. I mean, that's for a million bucks. You're absolutely going to take that, especially considering he's making plays. I mean, he's on track for 40 something assists this year. So to get a 50 point season out of a guy, potentially for a million bucks. I mean, that is a plus work by Don Sweeney, Um, a bet that really paid off. I, you know, and, and when you consider that, you know, this player is, is you know, 34, you know, going to be 35 in May, pretty good, pretty good stuff.
1: Yeah. Well, speaking of Sweeney, he's been really good at these trading deadlines. You just mentioned the Van Riemsdyk signing. I mean, you go back to Coyle in 19, they traded for Lindholm. I mean, Taylor Hall was really good for them. Bertuzzi was really good for them when he came over last year, of course. So Emily Kaplan from ESPN, I saw she reported that they're looking for basically a middle six forward. And If you look at this team right now, they are sort of asset poor in terms of the draft picks because, and look, Mm -hmm. they totally were were justified in doing that. They were trying to win a Stanley Cup, so you're going to trade away a lot of draft picks. But you start to think about it in terms of patra has been banged up, obviously a younger guy. We mentioned some of these guys having surprise seasons, but you would like to add a little bit of scoring punch. How difficult of a job do you think that is going to be able to accomplish for Sweeney to add something at the deadline in the middle six, considering what you have in terms of the assets.
0: Yeah, you almost think, I mean, if, well, if recent trends continue, he'll he'll look for kind of the value, right? He'll look for something like a distressed asset or a player, you know, a, a, not a young player, but like a kind of, um, you know, middle 20s kind of player who's maybe fallen out of favor, I think in LA, you know, he's a young player, but Arthur Kaliev, you know, a guy with like a really heavy shot, you know, had a high draft pedigree, but really can't seem to get things going. LA's kind of going through their struggles. Um, You know, if he gets in the right environment in Boston, you know, could he make a difference? Somebody like that, I I just, based on, you know, the assets, like you say, that they have, I mean, I I can, I, it's hard for me to think that they would try to package like, a, you know, a Patra and, you know, a a Frederick and, you know, and a Grizzly that kind of thing, plus a first round pick to try to get an Elias Lindholm. Because obviously, you know, you put Elias Lindholm on this team, you know. Maybe you move Coil to the third line, and you know now you have you know three outstanding lines, and you're starting to look a little bit more like last year. We you had you know depth, you know, in your top your top nine um, that could go up against anybody. I see them making more of a value add, which that's got to be exciting if you're a Bruins fan. I mean, you're looking say, well, you're at the point now where you're thinking, well, let's see what they got in store. You know, what 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 are they seeing uh, out there that you know, maybe other teams aren't seeing, you know, it's kind of, um, it's a nice spot to be when you kind of trust the front office. And I think that this front office has kind of earned some trust from the fan base.
1: Yeah, they certainly have. (laughs) They've been really good over the past couple of years, finding ways to sort of plug holes. All right, Matt, before we let you go. So Swayman's heading to the all-star game with pasta and Olmark not having obviously the season he did a year ago when he won the Vezna. And it really does feel like they dodged a bullet like, when he went down in that Arizona game, I thought it was going to be a lot more serious than it was. Like, that looked like, did he tear something? Like, that just looked ugly. So they dodged a bullet there. But I, I got to think that right now Montgomery's going to be thinking about, like, hey, how are we approaching the postseason with our goaltenders, right? Because last year it felt like we found out after that Olmark was banged up. So, hey, why didn't you make the switch to Swayman before Game 7? Because you bring him into Game 7, you didn't really get give him enough time. What do you think the approach is going to be when we get to the postseason this year? Is it just, hey, Swayman has the net and then if something goes south, we give it to Olmark? Or do you think there's a chance that they could be creative and use the platoon not all the time, but maybe like they have a scheduled game for Olmark in a postseason series?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think coming off of last year, you know, obviously that was such a such a gut punch of a of a series loss for them in in so many ways and certainly, you know, the goaltending, you know, you kind of just Like, what the heck just happened? You know, we had this incredible, you know, tandem all year and now it's over. And now, you know, what, you know, do we make the right call? So there's a lot of, a lot of soul searching, obviously, you know, in the, in the coaching staff, Um, you know, Jim Montgomery's comments after the year, you're thinking, okay, this is a guy who might try a platoon, you know, in in next postseason, no matter what. I'm not so sure right now, especially if Allmark still has something lingering that, that that's how that works and with how great Swayman has been. Uh, but maybe they've just decided organizationally that they're going to do a straight platoon, you know for for the the entire postseason run. Uh, I think right now, if game one is you know coming out of the break, you know i I give the net to Swayman. I think that's an obvious choice with how good he's been. He's shown that he can handle that. he's He's proven it every which way at this point. You know maybe not from a you know length of of uh, of run standpoint, but certainly with the quality of play that he's that he's um you know that he's had. I think it all depends, right? I mean, it's uh, how is he trending coming down the stretch? Is, you know, who's healthy, who's not? I I think that's really what it comes down to for them. Um, I wouldn't necessarily be shocked if they did a platoon just based on the way last year went. Uh, It would certainly be unique uh, because, you know, teams just don't do that. But then again, you know, if, if they've kind of internally said, you know, this, we don't need, like, this isn't voodoo here. You know, we don't need to like, you know, cook up any special potions and and pray on any, you know, <laughs> talismans like this is, you know, it, it's it's okay if we just switch goalies. They get it. We get it. You know, they're okay with it. We're okay with it. You know, maybe they're trendsetters in that way. I don't know, but it, it would be the first time we've seen it, Um, you know, around here, certainly. But if this is what your your team is built on is the strength of these two goalies who work so well together, who just have this special thing then why not try to win a championship that way? It'd be a heck of a compel- compelling storyline, that's for sure.
1: Yeah, I can't wait to see it because it's like, okay, if he does go with the platoon and it works, right, and Olmark say, like, really good in game three of a series, nobody's going to be, like, praising Jim Montgomery for it, right? But if he does put Olmark in, in game three and then Olmark gives up five goals, it's like, why would you do that? Why would you take Swayman out? So it's a difficult job for Jim Montgomery because he's going to get no credit and he's going to get all the blame. One thing I will say, though, for Swayman – He's made himself some money this year, man. Like by the yes. season he's had.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. I, I don't know if he's like an $8 million goalie, but boy, he's he's gotta be up there close. Like I think of the Sorokin contract was, I think it's eight eight times, you know, eight, eight years, sixty-six million, something like that. I mean, he's you know, he Swayman's definitely in that seven. He's gotta be in that seven million dollar range. I mean, I don't see how he's not. Um, so it, it's looking like, you know, I don't see them trading Allmark. Like, I don't think that's really a road that they want to go down just because of what they've been able to do with these two goalies. So it, I think it's, it's setting up to, for them to have a very expensive goalie tandem for the next couple of years anyway.
1: All right, Matt. Great stuff, man. Enjoy the all-star break. Enjoy the second half. That's Matt Porter from the globe. Matt, thank you so much for the time, man. We really appreciate it.
0: Appreciate you, Brian. Thanks, bud.
2: Once COVID happened, I was just like, I want to wear jogging pants and joggers and all kinds of soft pants as much as I possibly can, especially when I'm working out. Ultra comfortable and versatile ABC pants are really in a league of their own. Buy a pair right now at lululemon.com.
1: Welcome back into Off the Pike. Joining us now, producer extraordinaire, Jamie McClellan. Jamie, what's up,
4: man? How are you? I am chilling, Brian. I'm doing well. I'm glad the Celtics got back in the the W comb at home. It's getting a little worried. Yeah, good win for the C's. Good win for the C's. We
1: haven't talked since the conference title games either because, of course, we recorded early on Sunday. Crazy games. The good news, though, is the the off-the-pike TD parlay hit. There you go. It, It was at plus 660 when I gave it out on this show. I eventually did it. I was on the Ringer Wise Guys FanDuel TV before we recorded our pod on Sunday. And it actually, by the time I put it in, it was down to plus six thirty-two. So I cost myself some money when it comes to that. So we had a good weekend, man. My other parlay hit too: the Chiefs on the money line and the Niners to cover two and right. a half. Thank you, Dan Campbell, very much. Now my long shot parlay, <laughs> my, <laughs> my long shot parlay didn't hit, but two out of three parlays, man, not bad. Let's go. And I also on the Ringer Wise Guys, another thing I decided to do late because it was our last. Weekend of the NFL season mm-hmm. with multiple games, plus 180. I got the Chiefs on the money line to win that game. Wow. So, I mean,
4: yeah, yeah. like we talked we about, Brian, I mean, in, in hindsight, it's like, wow, you're getting plus 180 to take Pat Mahomes and the Chiefs. Yet, me or you the week before, we somehow convinced ourselves to take the other team. It's like one day, I mean, you learned. You Not learned the week, week before I did. Yeah, know you I'm learned the week before I did. Never <laughs> again. I'm already, I'm, already, I'm already in on the Chiefs for the Super Bowl. I'm already in. <sighs> I just—it's hard for me. I'm—I got too many emotions at stake. I think I'm—I'm I'm gonna have to mess around with some props and stuff to to stay interested because I don't—I don't, I don't want to see the Chiefs win a third Super Bowl.
1: I'm with you. Like, I, yeah, it's a good point. I'm with you. I don't want to see like this next dynasty, so to speak. Financially, I'm gonna want the Chiefs <laughs> to win. Yeah. Because I'm gonna bet on the Chiefs. Like, I'm probably gonna do some sort of an alternate spread. I like the minus two and a half because so, you can get that at plus. 116 right now. So I like that. But I will at some point. Yeah, I'll do something with the Chiefs. I just don't know how far I want to go. I think the interesting thing, and look, we're very early in this process. The game, it's we're recording this late Monday night. So we're still a while away from the Super Bowl. I'm really at this point, like thinking to myself. How are the Niners going to respond if they fall behind against this team? Right, because you think about it, they fall behind against Green Bay They fall behind against Detroit. Detroit helps them out with some just, you had the Gibbs fumble, right? You had the Dan Dan Campbell stuff where he could have gone up three scores early in the third quarter, didn't do it. They had a chance late in the game. Maybe they could have put a drive together to put put a field goal on the board and tie the game. But for some idiotic reason, they decide to run the ball. What was that third and goal or second and goal? It's like, dude, you can't run there. You, then you have to, the, the what's the percentage of getting an onside kick? I believe it's something like 4%. Yeah. Like, you, you don't yeah. get onside, that was the dumbest thing. Like, that may have been. An end of the game. Yeah, that was incredibly dumb, okay? So I just felt like the Lions, you know, they gave them too many. Like, even like the the Niners got lucky too on the IU catch,
4: right? <laughs> Very lucky.
1: Like, what a catch by
4: him. But I mean, they hit off the dude's helmet. It so, reminded and, me, Brian, of the, the Javon Kerr's catch. Remember that one against the Patriots in the Seahawks game? Yeah, I can actually that's talk about
1: that. that one because the Patriots won the game. Yeah, that's <laughs> true. The other one, we'll not mention his name, but he went to Syracuse. So I guess I should a be a couple. Yeah, uh, right? uh, Manningham and the guy we won't talk about. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, they've made a couple of Patriots have had a couple of big ones against them. But yeah, the other por- the other thing that was interesting about that game is. Purdy was so bad in the first half. And then in the second half, he's like a different guy. You know, he just looked. how many rushing yards did he end up with? Because he had, he had some, like,
4: he had like 40 rushing yards, I think, or 50 maybe. And he had at least all for the first downs. And they felt like very critical moments on like third down and stuff. And he just has a very good uh, internal clock, it would seem, about when to take off. Yeah, but in the first half, he didn't.
1: Like, he took yeah. sacks. And then the second half, it's like, oh, dude, this five for 48, Jamie. Yeah. So that's something yeah. we got to monitor, I think, for the Super Bowl is pretty rushing oh, good yards point. because you're right. Like in that second half, it's like he knew like, OK, if this guy's not open, that guy's not open. I'm just going to take off. And he's a li- he's faster than I thought yeah. he was. You know what I mean? He's not like you're not going to have design runs for him, but he can definitely scramble and pick up yardage.
4: Yeah, I think uh, well, the Lions, they seemingly have a pretty athletic defensive line. There were a couple times they were like he was like just out of grasp and it was the game.
1: Yeah. So I got to say I'm a little sad that. We just have the one game left because I think like I know we didn't have a ton of great playoff games, but I thought the Rams-Lions game was awesome. I thought the Green Bay and San Francisco game was awesome. I thought the Chiefs-Bills game was awesome. Even though the Ravens-Chiefs game was only 17-7, I thought that was awesome because I give the Chiefs, like the Chiefs came right away. The Chiefs score. They put the pressure on the Ravens. That's what I was talking about the guys on the Wise Guys on FanDuel TV on the wise guys. I was like, put pressure on Lamar, see what happens, right? Put pressure on it because these guys don't fall behind in games. Put pressure on Lamar and that Ravens team and look, they had their own issues in that game. Zay Flowers. I mean, what are you doing? Like the taunting thing. You can't fumble after the taunt, bro. Like, <laughs> <laughs> dude, <laughs> like you just made up for it, right? Like you made up for the taunt. He had to sit. I mean, that was a- that guy's a- an absolute stud, and you do stupid stuff like that, but. So I thought like we had a bunch of good playoff games and now I'm just kind of like, I know there were some stinkers in there, but I thought the playoffs for the most part were pretty good. And now it's like,
4: we got one football game left, you know, it kind of sucks. Every year, every year I get sad about this time, but it, it was a pretty good run overall. I'd say I'd say the two games, three games that Niners Packers game, like you said, Bill Chiefs and then Lions 49ers. Those are all like quite exciting games and dramatic and, you know, things you can second guess about the coaching and turnovers, et cetera. So. I agree. They were fun. I'm I am bummed. Though. I really it was so much fun with the Lions, you know, charging ahead. I really wanted them to do well. And I was also making money off them. Like I'd much rather make money off the Lions than make money off the Chiefs. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I'm
1: with you, man. I just when I think about that Lions team, I just wonder. Was that their best chance?
4: I think the one thing I, I was impressed by and comfortable. Or the by Ravens. With, either one of those two teams, Jamie. Well, I was gonna mention that because I think I feel better about the Lions because because of Jared Goff. He looked great, I thought, this whole postseason and Lamar did the things that Lamar's been doing for years and it's almost like he looks better than ever Jared Goff with that. So you know and you know football, it's like if you got a quarterback and you got a great offensive line, I don't see why they want to at least be in the in the conversation. Yeah. Oh, uh, it's a good point,
1: and like I think about the Ravens thing, like I said the same thing about the Bills. though. it's like the Bills, if you're not going to do it now, like the Ravens, if you're not going to do it now, like the division was easier this year because of the Burrow yeah. injury, right? So I mean, we'll see. Pittsburgh's not going to have a quarterback next year. It's probably going to be Kenny Pickett again for some <laughs> inexplicable <magnificent laughs> reason. But
4: I, I and, was just incredibly and, disappointed though in the the Baltimore. You said like how the Chiefs put pressure on them, and they did, but it was like. Yeah, it's the fucking playoffs. Of course, you're going to have some pressure on you. And they just seems like they folded at the very early on in that game.
1: Yeah. OK, Jamie. So since we had a miserable Patriots season, I'm happy that the postseason mm. ended the way it did because it was fun. We'll see how the Super Bowl is. I, I just hope we get a I I mean, it's a rematch, obviously. In Nineteen. I hope we get a great game. I really do. I want San Francisco to win, but I'm not going to pick them to win because they have Mahomes on the other side. So. After our conversation with Matt Porter, and we just watched the Celtics play again tonight. I mentioned the whole. Obviously, Porzingis didn't play in this game. I'm interested to see the Indiana game on Tuesday night because, of course, they lost to Indiana when Halliburton played, and it looks like Halliburton's going to play on Tuesday night. How about this for the Bruins and the Celtics both to win the championship? You want to t- <laughs> okay. you want, to, you, want to, you want to take a guess at what the odds are?
0: Them
4: both to win a championship, I would say like plus 3,000. Okay. Not a bad guess, man. Plus
1: 4,205. So $100 to win (laughs) 4,200. Yeah. I mean, may have to do it, man. May have to do it. Because obviously the Celtics are the biggest favorite right now. They're plus 310. Denver's at plus 450. So that's that's the reason you don't get as much like because I thought the value would be higher just because you're picking two teams to win a championship. The Bruins right now have are tied for the fourth or the third shortest huh. odds yet.
2: Yeah. Colorado's
1: good. Colorado's plus eight hundred. Uh-huh. For some reason, Edmonton is plus eight fifty. I know they played better, but I mean I don't know, man. They've had their issues in the postseason. Right. Bees are plus nine fifty. Panthers are plus nine fifty, which that would be an interesting Uh-oh. rematch series. Carolina's plus one thousand. You want no part of Carolina in the postseason. They just play the Bruins well, and the Rangers are plus eleven 1, hundred. But that's interesting for the Boston parlay. Maybe we put it in now.
4: I mean, you put on ten dollars to win four hundred twenty dollars. That sounds good to me. Why not?
1: Yeah. Okay, so maybe we uh, get our FanDuel bet in now. We'll see. Should we put? Th- should we add the Red Sox to it? No. <laughs> <laughs> I bet if we, I bet honestly, if we put the Red Sox in it and say the Celtics, I mean, no, I don't want to jinx anything, right? Knock on wood. Like if the Celtics won the championship and the Bruins won the Stanley Cup, and the last leg of it was the Red Sox to win the World Series, I don't even think you'd get offered a cash out. No, <laughs> no, they
4: they would feel very confident. <laughs> yeah, you get two of the three championship legs, and it's like. Yeah, we're not offering you a cash out. I'm not, I'm not even sure they would let you make that bet, Brian. I might break the computer adding the Red Sox odds into it, you know? It's too big yeah. a number. <laughs> well, let, let, uh,
1: Let's see if I can do it. I'll see if I can do it right now.
4: I don't, do see the, I don't see the MLB right now.
1: I guess it's early. Yeah, we'll have to check back in on that. But, I mean, hey, the Red Sox are loading up this offseason, so. Oh, my Lord, Brian. What are
4: they doing? What are they doing? What do they do this week, you think?
1: Uh, Nothing. They did. <laughs> they yeah. did what they did. What most of America <laughs> did on Sunday: sat yeah, back on football. their couch, ate a bunch of
4: chicken wings, some nachos. I don't know. Oh, Brian, they, I meant to. I meant to say, my uh, one of my good friends is a big Liverpool fan. Their their coach is leaving. Did you hear about this, Jurgen Klopp? He's like I saw the best that. coach in the EPL, and it's like, and it's obviously Fenway Sports Group. Huh?
1: Okay, so I don't follow this as much as you do in terms of soccer. So is he leaving?
4: Is it own, his own decision to leave? He is, like, beloved and a very, very good coach. He's kind of, like, I think he has a bit of the... He's burnt out, kind of similar to Sean McVay, I feel like, in L.A. when there was talks about whether he's going to walk away or not. But it doesn't make me think that he has the best relationship with John Henry, but I don't know. Yeah,
1: so that means that... Think about this for a second, though, because Alex Cora could leave after this season. Yeah, he's only, good point. He's got one year left on his contract. You had... What's his name? The guys, the coach you brought up, Jurgen Klopp. Okay, what if he leaves, Cora leaves, and Mike Sullivan decides to leave the Penguins? (laughs) Really, ringing endorsement of ownership.
4: All three are just like, you know, what guys? We've had enough. (laughs) (laughs) We're out here. What's a? What do you think? What is the thinking in FSG not offering Cora a contract? Do you think they have, and Cora just wants to do white and see? I don't think he'd take it yeah at this I point it. yeah why would you right yeah
1: totally all right jamie good stuff man thanks brian all right oh by the way so we're gonna have mark daniels coming up this week for mass live He has a great article on where everything went wrong with mac jones and the patriots so we'll get to we'll talk to mark later on in the week well pretty soon actually that probably will come up pretty soon because we're gonna put one up after the pacers as well so we'll have one for you after that and you'll hear mark daniels as well as always, make sure to get your voicemails in, 617 396 67172. Email your thoughts and questions to offthepike at gmail.com. Thanks to Jamie McClellan and Steve Strudy for producing this podcast, and we'll chat in a couple of days.
3: Must be 21 plus in president select states. FanDuel is offering online sports wagering in Kansas under an agreement with Kansas Star Casino LLC. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit FanDuel.com/RG in Colorado, Iowa, Kentucky, Michigan, New Jersey, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Illinois, Tennessee, Vermont, and Virginia. Call 1-800-NEXTSTEP or text NEXTSTEP to 53342 in Arizona. 1-888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org chat in Connecticut. 1-800-9-WITH-IT in Indiana. 1-800-522-4700 or visit ksgamblinghelp.com in Kansas. 1-877-770-STOP in Louisiana. Visit mdgamblinghelp.org in Maryland. Visit 1800gambler.net in West Virginia or call one 800 522 4700 in Wyoming. Hope is here. Visit gamblinghelplinema.org or call 800 327 5050 for 24 7 support in Massachusetts or call 1 877 8HOPENY or text HopeNY in